Welcome to Anchor Point, where we believe that the next 30 minutes could change your life forever. So join us to consider the greatest message ever heard, the good news of the gospel, as well as sound scriptural teaching for believers, all based on the Word of God, the anchor for our souls. How often we're going to hear this complaint, or perhaps even make it ourselves. I've got so much to do, but I just don't have the time. Well, the truth is, we all have exactly the same amount of time in a day. I've got 24 hours, and so do you. Each moment is a gift from God, and so it's so important for each of us to evaluate and value this precious commodity the same way that God does. On today's broadcast, Bible teacher and medical doctor, Dr. A.J. Higgins will be speaking about the Christian and his or her use of time. And we hope that you'll decide to spend the next 30 minutes of your time to listen to what the Bible has to say about this very important topic. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this age, and so on. Look down at uh, further in the chapter at verse number 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens. Verse number 13, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometime or one time were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now, just for the sake of time, chapter 3 and verse number 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Chapter 4, verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth, or from this moment on, walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, and so on. And finally, just uh, chapter 5, familiar verses. Verse number 14, Ephesians 5 and 14, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Is. And I trust that God will add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. So we want to talk today from the word of God about the believer and time. And I hope you haven't come to the meeting with the idea that this is going to be a, a business seminar or a seminar on time management. But it is ministry from the word of God on God's view of time and how we as believers should view the time that God has given us. Now, I don't know if you've noticed in the epistle to the Ephesians, and I've tried to highlight them in my reading, the vast expanse of time that the apostle's mind grappled with. He spoke about God's eternal purposes. He spoke about before the foundation of the world. He speaks about from the beginning of the ages. He speaks about other ages, the time past, henceforth, from this moment on. But now, ye who were once far off, are made nigh. He speaks in chapter 2 about the ages to come. 
The end of chapter 3, he tells us about through all ages, world without end. His mind spans from a past eternity to a future eternity and embraces as well the time past of our life, the now of our life, and the rest of our days. So this epistle would give us then a broad view of time as God and through the apostle, God intends us to understand it. Now really, if you think of it, there are very few things that we have. One of the few things we have is time that God has given us. And all of us complain we don't have enough time. Most men in business, most men in careers, most of our sisters in the home, there seems like there is never enough time to do everything that we need to do. But really, you have the same amount of time as I. God has meted it out to us, and we are to be wise stewards of the time God has given to us. So I want to talk, first of all, about the mystery of time. Now, what I mean by that is there are things that we do not know about time. If I were to ask you, what is time? What would you say? What is time? In fact, philosophers and scientists have debated, is there such a thing as time? Have we just made up time to somehow measure things, measure days, measure what we do? Is time something that we've created? Or is it something that God has, you know, is something that's inherent in life? What is time? You know, who said there are 60 minutes in an hour and 24 hours in a day? All of that is of our own devising. But we don't know what time is. We don't know how it started, do we? We do know that God began it, but can you conceive of timelessness and suddenly time begins? You know, you've all had the experience of having a clock that you had to wind. You know, you bring the new clock home and you wind it and suddenly it starts to go. It's kind of like what our universe is like. There was a, I'm going to say there was a time when there was no time. You see how hard it is for us even to, to talk about it. That once time did not exist, God began it. I can't conceive of that. My mind has no reference point. And likewise, the other thing we don't know is how much time we have. And so the psalmist wrote, make me to know the measure of my days and how short my time is. To recognize the brevity of our lives without bowing to the tyranny of time, without getting caught up in the idea that you know, we've got to constantly be doing something. Some of us who are type A's have more of a difficulty with that than some of you who fortunately are type B's. You know, someone has said that um, type A's make the world for the type B's to enjoy. I guess there's some truth to that. But let me talk about what we do know about this mystery of time. We do know who began it, don't we? That God created time, space, and matter. That eternity is just is not really another point on the continuum of time, but it's a different dimension altogether. Totally different. It's not part of what we call time. Now, for the sake of young Christians, let me just talk, mention something kind of aside for just a moment. We believe, and the Word of God teaches, that all things were made by the Lord Jesus Christ. We agree. We have that John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. He's the creator of all things. So that means he created what? Created matter, the world about us. He created what else? Space. He created time. Time Space and matter began in Genesis 1 and 1. So what does that mean? That means if he is timeless, he is eternal. And if he is eternal, he is God. Just that simple thing clears everything up. He made everything. He made time, space, matter. He's absolutely outside of it. He's timeless. He's eternal. He's deity. That's what is being taught in all of those passages. Everything came from his hand. And so who began it? 
the Lord Jesus Christ, the great creator who has become our savior, he began time. Why was time begun? Even though we don't understand it and can't conceive of it and can't somehow get our hand on it, we know that God created time to affect his purposes for us and for his son. Ephesians 1, we read it, that in the fullness of time, when all of time's purposes are brought to fruition, in the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. So time has this great purpose. God is bringing his son to a place of glory and to a place of honor. Where is time going? Now, if you are from an eastern country, you would learn India and some of those lands. To their mind, time is cyclical, constantly repeating itself. And so you get into reincarnation, theories like that, because time is cyclical, it always returns. If you were to be dealing with the secular idea, time is heading for the perfection of man. If you take an atheistic idea, time is going nowhere because we just live in a world of random chance and accidents and we're here because we are the great cosmic accident or the great cosmic joke, whatever you want to think of it as. And so how can there be any purpose in just random molecules and atoms colliding and events happening? I mean, everything is random. So there is no purpose. Time is going nowhere. But if you're a Christian, you know where time is going, that God has a goal that God is moving everything in our world towards a goal. That is where time is moving. And so we know where time is going. God intends to bring his people to his purposes and to bring Christ to his ultimate final glory, the mystery of time. But what of the tyranny of time? I think that's what most of us live with is the tyranny of time. The swiftness of time. Time waits for no one, does it? Time moves relentlessly. And we live in a world marked by the swiftness of time. We never, we never travel the same way twice. Now, if you just want proof of the swiftness of time, I don't know everyone here, no very few, but if you could catalog every name here and you would see a year from now, if you had a similar meeting, wouldn't be the same people. Not because they're not interested, but just time moves, time changes. Some will move away, some will be in heaven. Time moves. And so Job, in his eloquent and graphic and poetic language, speaks about his days being like the post. And of course, in that day, it was the idea of a man coming, riding, taking it, moving on, someone else taking it, moving on. Speaks of his life being like the tall ships. If you lived somewhere near where we live, you'd watch a sailboat and it would go out on the horizon and suddenly disappear. Job says, that's what my life is like. Just like a boat cresting the horizon and disappearing. Job says as well, he says, it's like the weaver shuttle, rapidly moving back and forth. That's how fast my life is coming and going. All of those graphic. And he says, it's like an eagle soaring to its prey. So life is swift. But not just the swiftness of time, but the snare of the past. The paralysis from failure in the past. Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. You know, nobody likes to be a failure. You know, you don't like to keep hitting yourself over the head. Failed again, failed again. So the result is you just stop trying. If living the Christian life has led to failure, you know, I, I messed up again. I, I disappointed the Lord again. And I didn't do what I should do again. Or, or I fell into that habit again. You know what happens is you stop trying because you don't want to fail again. Why try? Why confront failure all over again? And so you get into the paralysis from the past. Times past with all of their disappointment, with all of their discouragements, with all of their failures, 
and you just say, I'm just going to try to live a safe life and not try to do anything and not try to rise any higher, just stay within the comfort zone so that I don't feel like a failure. And there are Christians who give up because of the past. Now, I am not trying to minimize failures in the past, but at any moment in time, a believer who wants to please and live for God can start all over again. He is the God of recovery. He is the God of the second chance, the third chance, the fourth chance. That doesn't mean we minimize the solemnity of it, but no believer has to live with the albatross of the past around his neck. There is recovery, there is restoration. So what do you do with the past? What is the purpose of guilt? Just think about that. What is the purpose of guilt? Why is it that God has given us consciences, that God has made us sensitive to failure and sin, and as a result then, we feel guilty? What is its purpose? What's the purpose of guilt for someone who is not saved? If you're here today, and you have yet to know the joy of sins forgiven, have yet to know what it is to be saved, what is the purpose of guilt for a sinner? What is the purpose of guilt for a believer? When they realize, I have sinned against God, I have dishonored Him, and my conscience bothers me. What is the purpose of guilt? Guilt has one purpose. It's not something I live with. It's something I bring to God and confess and leave. Guilt brings a sinner to Christ to find salvation, and his guilt is gone. Guilt brings a believer to God to confess his sin, and he takes God at his word. His sin is forgiven. He moves on. You know what we do? We nurture our guilt. We kind of keep it. You know why? We're trying to do penance. We think if we can feel guilty long enough, God will really forgive us and really realize how bad we feel, and he'll restore us. We're trying to do penance, trying to pay for our sin by our guilty feelings. It's dishonoring God and his word. I'm not saying we're proud about our sin. That's not a matter of arrogance, not like the people that go on the talk shows. If someone gets into drugs, they go into a drug rehab, and they come out, and they're a big celebrity. They make the rounds of the talk show. A year later, they're back in rehab, another addiction. Come out again, make the round of the talk show host as though, look at what I've done, how great I am. I've overcome my habit and they're back in it a year later. No, no, we're not talking about arrogance and pride over sin. What we're talking about is this. God does not expect his people to live with guilt all their lives. He doesn't expect us to be paralyzed by past failure. He wants us to come, confess, enjoy restoration, and move on for God. But some say, that sounds very easy. The things of my past were tragic lessons. God wants us to redeem the past. What do you do with the past if it's been tragic, if there's been tremendous failure? He wants us to bring it into the present and to learn from it, to use it for the present. There are believers, there are believers who have things in their past which are, even before their days of conversion, believers who have things in their past, abuse and other things that we have no answers for. And don't think that, you know, one verse from the Bible suddenly makes it all disappear, that expunges it from their minds. There are things indelibly imprinted upon the minds of some people because of all they have had to live through and endure. What do you do with that? You just can't tell them, forget it. And now that you're saved, isn't it? No, they, they have to be able to bring it in to, and to use it now for God in some way rather than be paralyzed by it. So the snare of the past. And then, of course, there is the subtle danger of always living of what I'm going to do someday. 
always living in the future, expecting someday to be what I ought to be now for God. That once I'm done this education, once I am done starting my business, once the children are a little bit bigger, once we've got established and our home is settled and we've paid off a few debts and I don't have to work so hard, then we will begin living for God. If you can't live for God where you are right now, then you can't live for God anywhere. Change of location, a change of venue. Uh, no, no. God wants you right now where you are to live for him from this moment on. So never live just expecting someday to be what God wants you to be. God wants it today. God wants it today. That verse we use in the gospel, today if you will hear his voice, really had application to people who were on the, the pathway for God. And God said, today is the day. So the tyranny of time, the subtle danger then of living just for the future. I hate to sound like an old man looking back. I don't think I'm old. I'm not young, but I don't think I'm old yet. But yet, okay, yet, there are things that I intended to do for God that I realize now won't get done beyond that. That's how fast time goes. That's, that's the, the swiftness of time. You start out in your young Christian career and you, you have tremendous goals and tremendous vistas. And as time goes on, you realize you're not getting them. And you have to recognize that'll have to be for another generation to accomplish. I can't do it. That's how quickly time goes. Now, there's nothing wrong with goals. Nothing wrong with setting high standards. Goals way out there. You know, they say shoot for the moon and at least you'll hit the stars if you miss. Nothing wrong with that. And you should have goals for your Christian life. You should have dreams for your Christian life. You should have aspirations for God in your Christian life, not just waiting as a passive cork in the ocean for whatever carries you where. Goals for God and seek to live for Him. But the danger of just living with future expectations without really giving yourself now the tyranny of time. Let me talk about the tragedy of time past. We read in chapter 2, didn't we? Verse number 2, wherein in time past. Verse number 13, you who were one time far off. The tragedy of time past is an entirely wasted existence. An entirely wasted existence. Life without Christ, the days before our conversion, the time before our salvation, he just writes it off. The time past. You know what Peter says in chapter 4 of his epistle? Peter said the time past sufficed. However long it was, if you were saved at seven, the time past sufficed to fulfill the will of men. If you were saved at 12, time past was long enough to live for self. If you were saved at 21, like some of us, the time past sufficed. Whatever age you were saved, those years before that, God says that was enough. That was enough time to give, to live for the lust of the flesh and the will of men. Henceforth, here's how God wants us to live. That we might live the rest of our days is how Peter applies it. So Peter divides life very simply. Peter, very simple thinker. Not like Paul with his tremendous mind. And Peter wasn't any slouch, but you'll understand what I mean. Peter just divided life into these two broad categories. The time past of our life and the rest of our time. And today, if you are saved, you have before you the rest of your time. The rest of your days. And Peter says those days should be lived to the will of God. The tragedy of the past that we spent years, some of us, 
living for self, living in sin, living for the world. Life outside of Christ. But there is another possible tragedy, and it's life outside the will of God. Life outside the will of God. And so we read in chapter 5, Paul is writing to the Ephesians, don't be unwise, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Possible to be saved, but to be living my life outside the will of God. Let me graphically tell you how James describes it. James speaks about businessmen. Now, he's not picking on businessmen, but one of the things James is dealing with in his epistle are the rich and how they treat the poor, how they deal with the Christians. And he says, some of you rich men say, today and tomorrow I'll go into such a city, and I'll buy, and I'll sell, and I'll get gain. And James says, ye ought to say, ye ought to say, if the Lord will. And then he says, for what is your life? It is even a vapor. Now, you know what a vapor is. What James is saying is life outside the will of God has as much substance to it as a vapor. Life outside the will of God has as much substance to it as a vapor. Now, don't misunderstand me. The idea of the will of God is not some, uh, you know, should I be a missionary, and maybe if I'm not a missionary, then my life won't, or should I be an evangelist, or... No. 99% of the will of God is obvious in the Word of God. Clear, direct, unmistakable. Life lived outside of the sphere of that will. James says it's like a vapor. It has no substance, no reality to it. The tragedy of a life outside of Christ... The tragedy of a life outside of the will of God. All my energies being spent for things, for me. We all get into the snare of it. Yes, how often we all fall into the same snare of wasting the precious time that we have, usually through making poor choices and how we spend it, for ourselves and not for the Lord. But as Dr. Higgins has discussed, we can also become ensnared by our past, failures and regrets that prevent us from moving forward in our walk for the Lord. Really, the Lord doesn't want us to dwell on these experiences. He wants us to learn from them and to use the rest of our days for His glory. And it's all made possible by one simple formula, keeping Christ preeminent in our hearts. And this gives us joy, the strength and direction that we need to live victorious Christian lives. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you to understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at email at anchorpointradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad that you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by Christians who are meeting in various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services as well as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. No collection is ever taken, and a very warm welcome awaits you. And if you've been challenged by today's message, would like to know more about the truth of the gospel, or of gathering under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ following New Testament principles, please feel free to check out our website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information, as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the Gospel Hall nearest you. My name is John Sharp, and thank you once again for listening. And we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that in times like these, you need a Savior. And in times like these, you need an anchor.